The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Morning uh, adjustments is the right word for the music team. We got some folks out sick and um, nice job, everybody. Nice job. Mm. Mark 12, I want to read just a part of the passage we're going to be working on together this morning. I'm going to just read verses 38 through 40. I love to hear those pages rustling, people in their Bibles or those phone pages turning, um, which I can't really hear, but I just imagine. Um, uh, And so Jesus is teaching uh, in the temple and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question that's going to require you to think of maybe uh, in the last couple of days. We sent out an an email from the church. You might have gotten it through your email. If you don't have an email, you might have gotten it in the post. I sent out a congregational letter through Kathy, who comes and volunteers once a week. She did all the the hard work. How many of you got it? Oh, good, good, good. If you didn't get it, uh, it could be that your postal service is a little slow um, or you haven't checked your email lately. Uh, but I would encourage you, uh, I, I, I'm not going to say how many of you read it, I'll just leave it that you got it and assume the best, thank you Will, thank you Dan. Um, if you didn't get it, uh, there might be a few copies, I made some extra copies, left them on the table out there. And the reason I'm asking this is not to check on uh, how well we're doing with communication, but because in that letter, uh, if you read it, you might remember I used the phrase, do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. And, and, I, and I did it because that phrase resonated with the hope that I have. And I really do have a hope for a time of spiritual refreshing to come uh, to our two congregations. A season of seeing men and women, boys and girls coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, to see baptisms of new converts. On a regular basis, people being discipled into the church. But as I thought about this sermon and the hope in my heart of do it again, Lord, I had to ask a hard question about the ministry of Jesus Christ because we are now uh, three full years and just a few days away from his death, and it would appear that he has failed. It would appear that he has failed. The people have not truly repented. 
The true worship of God has not returned to the temple. The religious leaders continued in their strong opposition to Jesus. And I don't think it is a bad question at all, even for us who are very familiar with the story of Jesus, to ask, did the ministry of Jesus fail? And if it, if it did on some level, what hope do we have for ministry to bear spiritual fruit to the glory of God? Because we're throwing all of our hope on Jesus. All of our hope on Jesus. Now, now rest assured that I do not think on any level that the ministry of Jesus failed. And Mark 12 is going to help me help you see that. And also to see, God willing, that in a time when it appears that the church uh, is on its way out, I would uh, propose and strongly encourage us to think that actually the opposite is happening, although it might not look that way. At the end of last week's sermon... Jesus was debating the Sadducees over issues surrounding the resurrection. And on the heels of that debate ending, we're told in verse number 28 that one of the scribes uh, who would have been part of the temple came up and he had been hearing the dispute between Jesus, the religious leaders, and uh, he uh, had listened in enough to see that Jesus had answered uh, his critics well. And uh, so then the scribe asked Jesus a question. In fact, it is uh, the question that Tyler read from Deuteronomy 6 uh, in the form of a prayer. It would have been the prayer that uh, a faithful Jew would have re recited every morning when they rose from bed. It is perhaps the most important question to ask a Jew, especially a rabbi, when the scribe asked Jesus, which is the most important commandment of all? And then Jesus answers uh, in verse 29, we see the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe then uh, looks at Jesus, the rabbi. He says, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And in and, and this little exchange back and forth then in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, well, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, all of that is very important. We could spend a whole sermon just talking about that. But I was very interested in the little editorial comment that Mark then makes. 
When Mark writes, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, was it because uh, they just were tired of getting a verbal beat down by Jesus? He was their superior in every way. Or is Mark indicating something different altogether about how he's presenting the life of Jesus to us? See, this editorial comment I take to mean that Mark is making his closing arguments about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is Mark's way of saying that Jesus was a faithful prophet who upheld the standards of the Mosaic law, which said, love God, love your neighbor. For the first 11 chapters of his gospel, Mark has presented evidence to the reader. That's us, right? We've been doing this since January. He's presented evidence to us that Jesus can be trusted, that Jesus not only said the right things, but he did the right things. And Mark, uh, as it were, confirms this for us. Here in, in this final uh, chapter before then the prophetic ministry of Jesus is closed up in Mark's gospel. He provides this corroborating testimony by the scribe as the scribe asks, asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? It's Mark's way of saying Jesus can be trusted, not just because Jesus answered correctly, but because Jesus lived what he answered. The evidence provides a basis for us then to say that the ministry of Jesus did not fail, but instead, in an altogether different way, different than anyone else, the ministry of Jesus is a model of integrity and can be trusted fully. You and I, even at this point, 2,000 years later, can still trust the ministry of Jesus. The refusal of Jesus to compromise his message to save his neck or to accommodate the desires of the people is, in fact, what loving God above all others and with all that you have, that's what it's all about. That you love God more, even at the cost of your popularity or at the cost of whatever it might be in your life choices that you have to make day by day. But if you look at the final uh, example in chapter number 12, I think you get the other side of the commandment. That, that Jesus not only loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but that he loved his neighbor as well. As Jesus moves across to the treasury, he sits down, uh, verse 41, people are putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And then the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he calls his disciples always oh, say, guys, get over here, look at something. Look at I tell you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the office box or to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. She had uh, to live on. Mark has presented evidence that Jesus does indeed love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also 
that he loved his neighbor as well. I had, I had a moment of creativity this past week. Do you ever have one of those? They're few and far between. They come, they're just like a passing cloud, you know, and then they're gone, and you think, wow, I'm, I'm so brilliant. And as I sat there and I thought about this sermon, I thought, I'm going to title this sermon of Mites and Men. Apologies to John Steinbeck. So I think that is a killer, like, top-notch sermon title. I'd put that sermon title up against any sermon title. Probably someone has already thought of it, but nevertheless, I'm living large for a while on that sermon title. Maybe in your Bible, the subheading is the widow's mite. Or the subheading is the widow's offering, like it is in my Bible. But we have to be reminded these subheadings sometimes aren't helpful. Because then they, they precondition us to think, oh, that's what I'm about to read, and that may not always be the case. So you want to be careful about preconditioned subheadings that you miss something much larger that's going on. Yes, this woman stands in contrast to most of the people we've met along the way in Mark's gospel. She is a faithful Israelite who does her part in response to the temple. But, but let's not moralize the story by suggesting that, you know, we need to be like the widow. Let's have a give it our, our all Sunday or some such thing. Um, that's not the point of the story. Instead, we need to see her as a daughter of Abraham who is faithful even though all of the majority of people around her are being unfaithful. And how does Jesus respond to that? How does Jesus respond to that? Does he commend the wealthy, dropping in all of their money? And then he says, hey, look at this woman. Look at this woman. See what she is doing. She's giving her all in obedience to God. And he commends her. And as he commends her, he, he shows us the other side of that commandment, right? To love God and uh, to love our neighbor. And these two commandments, Jesus said, are, you know, what it means then to be faithful in the sight of God. And so just as Mark gives us a testimony of a scribe who authenticates the prophetic ministry of Jesus, he also gives to us an example of a faithful woman. And so this story works these two ways. On one hand, Jesus is commended by a scribe. Testimony, testifying, Jesus is the real deal. He got the answer right, but then in the example of the widow, you say, yeah, but he lived the answer. He, he wasn't like shoving the widow to the side and directing his disciples to all the wealthy people and saying, hey, make sure you get them after I'm gone. You're going to need, you know, some financing for your project. You know, it, it, would, be, it would be easy to despair after reading the first 11 chapters of Mark because it does appear on one level that the ministry of Jesus is a massive failure. But, it, but it, he isn't. He isn't. He is God's faithful prophet who was sent to preach repentance and a message of hope that the kingdom of God had come near, that it was within reach. And even though the people of Israel have not responded to that message, it doesn't mean that hope is gone. It doesn't mean that 
that somehow Jesus is like, well, that's that. We're all done. Nobody's listening. Let's pack up. We'll go somewhere else. Hopefully, you know, they'll listen there. You see, the fig tree may be cursed. The temple will be judged. But in Jesus, there is still hope. And that hope is found then in the promise of a king who over the next few days appears to not be a king at all, but begins to rise up and to begin to be seen as God's king, who not only will overcome the rejection of the people, but would overcome death itself. I mean, all of us, I'm sure, I'm sure, have felt the sting of rejection. The bitter taste in your mouth of rejection. We all on some level have had to face the difficulties and challenges of death. But in Jesus, he rises above those things and he conquers those things. Not not in a ministry that has failed, but in a ministry that is entirely victorious. And you say, well, how, how do we know that? Well, after the resurrection of Jesus. The church apostolic, that is the church that was sent, not only preached the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the justification of the sinner, but they also courageously preached the resurrection of Jesus. If you were to read through the first six chapters or so of of, um, the book of Acts, you will see multiple occasions when the apostles are arrested. And the reason they're arrested is not because they said that Jesus died on the cross. Everybody knew that, right? It hadn't been but a few months since that happened. They got in trouble because what were they adding to that? Three days later, he did what? He is risen, right? He's risen indeed. That's what got him in trouble. But you see, when they preached the resurrection of Jesus, they didn't just pull it out of the, you know, the the magician's hat. They tied it to the same thing Jesus ties his life to right here in the middle of Mark chapter 12 and verse number 35. When Jesus is teaching in the temple, he poses a question. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... And here, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, or at least a portion of it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You know what is the primary passage that the apostles used in their preaching, that Paul used in the defense of the gospel when he wrote letters to the church? It was Psalm 110. My Lord, the Lord said that my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And Jesus quotes this right here in the temple. The apostles then pick up on that and they quote it as well. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, Psalm 110 is a song that celebrates the exaltation of God's king, God's true final king over Israel's greatest king, David. David, right? Israel's greatest king, except he's not 
because he saw down the road that through his like lineage, a king would come that he would call Lord. Now, now just, just think about this. That David, who wrote this psalm a thousand years before Christ comes, sees down the road that God would send a king who would be greater than him, that he would call Lord. And the people that are in the temple listening to Jesus teach hear that, and it is like a rallying cry. What, what, what is, how does your translation read? The great throng heard him. Verse 37, what is the last word? Gladly. What else do we have? End of verse 37. What's the last word in verse 37? Heard him. With delight. Anything else? Joy. Rejoicing. It ignited them. It, it put in their heart hope. Here's the Christ. Here's the Messiah. Here's the one that David saw. He not only can answer well, but guess what? He is now demonstrating his kingship. He is not only the prophet that is healing, he is not only the prophet that is preaching, now in some strange way he's identifying as the very one that our great king David saw. Is this the Christ? Is this David, the son of David? Well, of course, within three days, it's all going to look utterly foolish. It's going to look like the one who claims to be Messiah is not as he is driven out of the city to be crucified on top of a trash heap with common criminals. And yet, never forget, it is through then that humiliation that God's king completes the greater work of redeeming his people through the power of his resurrection and in the glory of his ascension and exaltation, the one that David saw down the road a thousand years later is Jesus Christ. He is the king. He is the king over everything. David saw it. Do, do, do you see it? The people at this moment, they didn't see it. Three days later, it looks completely ridiculous to say that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of Psalm 110. But who are you going to believe? You know, right now, in your life today, who are you believing? Who has the greatest impact on your, on your life? You see, religion, however that religion is expressed, is always going to have a credibility gap. People who follow religion, whatever that religion may be, they're going to have a credi credibility gap as well. Which is why Jesus gives the warning that we read earlier at the beginning about bewaring of the scribes. Religion oppresses. Religion devours. Religion makes pretense. And according to Jesus and what we'll see beginning next week in chapter 13, it's going to receive condemnation. It isn't the true church of Jesus Christ that's fading off into the 
you know, oblivion. It, it is religion, and it is all of the oppression of religion because the one true king, who at this point in the story doesn't look like a king at all, is actually the king. By midday on Friday of that week, it didn't look like Jesus should be believed. It looked like his life and ministry were not just a failure, but actually he was cursed by God. But, but let me ask you a question. This is a bit of a trick question, I know, and I, I'm going to ask it anyway. Who in the room, you know, lately, within, you know, maybe the last month even, has, uh, has read the requirements in the Mosaic Law for a Jewish prophet? Anybody up to speed on that in the room? Anybody, anybody read that lately? I didn't, you know, I hadn't either, so I went back and I read it. Because, because Mark is presenting evidence that the prophetic ministry of Jesus while ending at this moment in the sense of his public ministry on earth must be believed. But if you read the requirements of a Jewish prophet and the law, you would say, well, it shouldn't be believed because it doesn't look like it's coming true. But you know what? We have to listen to the apostles again. We have to take our our cue from the apostolic witness. Peter must, have read, Peter must have read them. And I'd encourage you to turn over to Acts chapter number 3. And listen to the answer that Peter gives when he is being interrogated by the same crowd that interrogated Jesus and put Jesus to death. Uh, Peter says this and, and is, is absolutely brilliant what Peter does in verse number 17 of Acts 3. Now, brothers, he's talking to the, to the accusers. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for a restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall Listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and, the, and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham... And in you, your offspring, all families of the earth will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, they're, they're saying these things to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees come upon them. They're greatly annoyed because they were teaching 
the people and proclaiming what? In Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And what did they do? They put them in custody until the next day. It was already evening. But what is the response from the crowd? Many of those who had heard the word did what? Believed. Believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what Mark is doing for us? If ever, you know, we, we, we lose confidence or we lack confidence or we think somehow that, you know, we're fading off into the distance, we say no. Because the prophet that preached, his ministry was confirmed. The things that he said indeed came to pass and the great confirmation of his resurrection then proves not only that his prophetic ministry was right, but that his kingship is firm and secure, ruling over all, ruling over us. And when we carefully examine the evidence Mark has presented, we gain confidence that not only did the ministry of Jesus not fail, but there was no credibility gap with Jesus. He loved God, he loved his neighbor, and through this massive love, he provided the only way possible then for us to carry out the great commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. But are we doing it? Are we doing it? In our current religious culture in America, there is a massive credibility gap. In 1985, Gallup polled and 67% of Americans surveyed rated the honesty and ethics of clergy members as high or very high. By 2020, that percentage slipped to under 40%. Only 39% of Americans consider the clergy to have a high ethical standard. You know, one of the challenges we must face in ministry today is this credibility gap. But you know, the problem isn't just found in the leaders of the church, it is found broadly in the church as well. In other words, we who gather in the church, we may say the right things, but are we living the right way day by day in front of our neighbors or relatives or people at work or school or whatever it might be? If someone asked you, what is the great commandment, would you be able to say, hey, I got that one. The guy preached on it last week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you really can't say the next one because of coldness. Loss of concern for for your neighbor? Would you be able to answer with your words only, or do you actually, with your life, love God and love your neighbor? This is why I'm asking us to pray. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. We can have confidence in Jesus because he is the king. He is the one, as he himself proclaims to be, that David saw. The evidence has been presented by Mark that his prophetic ministry can be trusted. He is the one 
that Mark has presented him to be the one who is the fullness of God in bodily form. But I want you to remember something. Through now 12 chapters of Mark, the admonition has been to the reader, listen, hear, listen, hear. This is the admonition that Jesus has given. This is how it starts in that great statement, hear, O Israel. Just a few days before the death of Jesus, we are given an entire chapter in which we are encouraged to hear as Jesus points to the psalm that was written about him, as Jesus takes his accusers to the law that he perfectly obeyed and presented it to them. He goes again to the law. He lives up to the standard of the law. He goes back to the psalms. He says over and over again now through his spirit to the church, listen to me. Hear what I am saying. Are we hearing? Are we listening? Are we surrendering then to his kingly rule? Hearing is the first step to a life of integrity. As we hear God's word, we should be responding to what we have heard. That response then is to surrender as we give our lives to God and by faith receive again and again his love and his forgiveness. And as that saving grace that is poured out upon us, we are transformed into a people who can not only say the right words, but actually live the words with integrity before God and before one another and before our neighbors. And when that happens, then the credibility gap is closed. And people begin to hear, and people begin to see, and people begin to respond to people whose witness goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did the ministry of Jesus fail? Hardly. It is eternally fruitful. Is our ministry failing? Are we failing? Will we fail? Not a chance of failure if we will hear the word of God and by his power do what God's word says, which is why I encourage you to pray with me. Do it again, Lord. Give to Durkee Town. And now give to St. James a heart that is hearing and obeying what God has said. Pour out your spirit so that we hear and we respond and with faith we believe that just as Jesus was faithful, so we too can be faithful in his name. Amen. Father, I give you thanks for Mark 12. What a chapter. What an incredible thing Jesus does as he presents himself once again prophet to be believed king to be obeyed now father as we come to his table where his priestly office is once again presented to us 
Let us be ready to share in the fellowship of the risen Christ. Let us be ready to share in the fellowship of your church, one with another. Not because we point to perfection, not because we have some religiosity, but because we have humble hearts, surrendered, ready to admit our faults, and ready to respond with the courage of obedience. I'll give you a bit of time to prepare your own hearts as Mike comes and leads us from the table this morning. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.